Thanks, guys, and thank you for leading us so well this morning. Um, do you ever wish that you could start again with something? Anyone? Do you ever wish that you're in a situation, you think, if only I could start this all again? you ever done it with a conversation? Anyone, anyone got into a conversation, you thought, I wish I could start this again? I have. I mean, like the time I said to this lady, when's it due? You know what's coming next, don't you? I'm not pregnant. You just kind of want the world, the earth to open up and swallow you. And you certainly want to start the conversation again. Or you ever start an activity like a flat pack piece of furniture. Do you know what I mean? And you're into it and you realise you haven't started it well. And so as you keep going and keep going, it gets worse and worse. And you just wish you could do it all over again. Anyone know what I'm on about? Perhaps there's a relationship. You wish you could start over again. Perhaps you found yourself in a job situation. You wish you could go back to the beginning. Start all over again. You do it so so differently. The sad and tragic thing is that some people get to a stage in their life where they wish their whole life could start over again. There's um, a poem, a poignant poem written by a lady called Louise Fletcher called The Land of Begin Again. And there's a verse in it which says this, I wish that there was some wonderful place called The Land of Begin Again. Where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never be put on again. I wish there was some wonderful place called the land of begin again. Well, I've got news for you this morning. There is a place called the land of begin again. Do you know that? God is the God who revels in begin agains. agains. He loves doing that. He loves starting over for us. And if you've got your Bible, we're in Jonah chapter 3, and we're about to read what I think is one of the most beautiful and powerful verses in the whole of the Bible. But before we read it, I'm going to recap and set it up a little bit for you, those of you that haven't been with us, or those of you that have been asleep, okay, let me set it up for you. Jonah chapter 1, Jonah's a prophet, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, so he hears God at this stage. And, and God says, Jonah, I want you, you're my prophet, so you do, you know, that's what you do, that's your ministry. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, Nineveh is a great city in Assyria, and it's full of evil, and it's full of darkness. And Jonah looks and says to God, nah, and turns the other direction and heads off towards Tarshish, which is in southern Spain, is a year away from where he meant to be going. But because God loves Jonah so much, he doesn't let him run away. The worst thing that God can ever do to you or me is to take his hand off us. Do you know that? And so because he loved Jonah so much, and he couldn't get through, through his word and through his spirit, because Jonah wasn't listening. So he sent a storm to get his attention, but Jonah falls asleep. He sends a captain to knock on the door, but Jonah's still not really awake. Then Jonah wakes up, but only naturally. So then he gets thrown into the sea and he gets swallowed by a fish which takes him down. And as he's taken down by the fish, inside the fish, he begins to turn and begins to run back towards God. He's, fu- he's not fully turned yet, as we'll see, but he's running towards God, at least in the right direction. And the fish takes him to Nineveh, which is where God always wanted him to be, and vomits him out onto dry ground. And that's where we're picking it up. But this isn't just about a prophet called Jonah. This is about you and me. This is an allegory, in other words, a story that we are in. Because we all get spoken to by God who says, face your darkness, enter your darkness, either externally or internally, but we would rather turn and run in the opposite direction rather than face the darkness. So we all head to our own Tarshishes, 
And that's easy for you to say. Our own Tarshish, our own escapism, rather than face the darkness. But God loves us too much to let us do that. And if he can't get our attention through his word and his spirit, sometimes he sends storms and a fish. And when we're in a storm and a fish, we often say, please rescue me, please rescue me, please get me out. We don't realise that what we're asking to be delivered from is what God has sent to save us. And it's not only is it about Jonah, not only is it about you and me, it's also about the church. So often the church is called to face the darkness, but the church wants to be more comfortable. So we run our own direction and God sends a storm and a fish to try and get our attention. It's not only about you, it's not only about Jonah, it's not only about the church, it's also, ultimately, it's about the human heart, which is deceitful above all things. And actually, underneath all of that, it's about God. Because if you took God out of the story of Jonah, it wouldn't make sense. And if you took God out of your story, it wouldn't make sense either. So that's the background. That's what we've been doing the last two weeks. It took a lot longer to say than I've just told you there. And then we come up to this, which I believe is the most powerful and beautiful verse, one of them in the whole Bible. Jonah 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Isn't that phenomenal? This disobedient prophet, who with a nasty, selfish heart, really, turns and runs away from his God... God says, the word of the Lord comes to you, Jonah, a second time. I think that is unbelievable. Unbelievable. There's an old hymn that says, Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. God is the God of the second look. God is the God of the second look. That doesn't seem to be resonating. God loves giving second chances. Aren't you excited about that? Abraham was excited about that because Abraham was called by God, went down to Egypt, masqueraded his wife as his sister, really let God down. But God loved Abraham so much, he gave him a second look. Moses was called to deliver his people from Egypt, but tried to do it the violent way and trying to kill the soldiers one at a time. And 40 years later, in the desert, God came to him in a burning bush and said, Moses, I love you so much, I'm giving you a second look. And Jacob, who was a deceiver and a schemer, who deceived his father, deceived his brother, deceived his uncle, and yet God wrestled him and gave him a second look. And Peter, the man who said to Jesus, I will never betray you, I will never ever betray you, betrayed him three times. And then when Jesus is crucified and Peter goes back to what he knows best, what he's comfortable with, which is fishing, Jesus comes to him and says, do you love me, Peter? Let's go again. He gave him a second look. Aren't you excited about that? I'm excited because I am the recipient of a second look and of a third look and of a fourth look and God is gracious with me and God is gracious with you and God was gracious with Jonah. This is a window into the heart of God. Do you know that? And if you are here this morning, and of course you're here this morning, that's a silly preacher's statement, but if you are here this morning and if you are this morning and you said, I heard God once, I was used by God once, but now because of what I've done or what's happened, God couldn't use me again. I want to declare that is not true. God is the God of the second look. And I want you to know this morning that God has got you here for a reason. A reason because he wants the word of the Lord to come to you a second time. That's his heart. That is his heart. He is so gracious. But then we begin to see the heart of Jonah. And we're going to read through every single verse and look at every verse here in this chapter this morning. God says, go to the great city of Nineveh. 
Proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, it's great because of lots of reasons. It's great because of its size and its influence as the capital of Assyria. It's also great because of its evil and wickedness. We're going to learn more about that next week, and that will make your hair curl, which is going to be a challenge for some of us this morning. It's wicked, great in wickedness. And then in verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. We don't quite know whether that means it was three days away or whether it required three days to visit around it. We're not sure. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, on the surface, it looks like Jonah's great because he obeys God and he serves God and he does what God asks him to do. How many know that's a good thing? But the question I've got is, how's his heart? Because it's one thing to obey God, and that's important. It's another thing to have the heart that matches the actions that we're doing. And for this, you've got to go a little deeper. You've got to look at the message he actually brings, which is eight words long, or in the Hebrew, five words. Five Hebrew words is all that he says. Eight English words. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, if you compare that, with some other prophets who also went into Nineveh at other times in the history. Like Nahum. If you've never heard of Nahum, little book in the Old Testament, one of the 12 minor prophets. Jonah's one. Nahum is another. Now listen to the contrast in words between Nahum and Jonah. When Nahum goes in. Anyone, anyone really love life verses? You know, that's, that's my life verse. Anyone really want those? Someone's come and prophesied and given me a life verse. You do not want to go anywhere near the book of Nahum for a life verse. Trust me. Here's a few. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. Not a great life verse. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness. More Lord. You just don't want that, do you? You don't want that for you, really. And the kingdom's your shame. Listen, I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort her? That's the passion that the prophets went to Nineveh with because it was such a great, wicked and evil city as we'll see next week. And yet Jonah pitches up 40 more days and you'll be overthrown unless you sort yourself out. See, what's happening here is that Jonah is obedient and doing what God says but on the inside there's a whole different story. It's a little bit like a petulant teenager. Whatever. Anyone know what I'm talking about? You will tidy your room, whatever. And they do it eventually, but their heart is not really in it, if I'm really honest. And before we just talk about petulant teenagers, it's like petulant 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, because we're all a little bit like that. Where we do what we know is right on the outside, but on the inside, that's a whole different story. A little bit like that story you know very well. I've told it many times of the kid who's standing up on the back seat of the car. Mom turns around and says, sit down. No, sit down. And then what we all do as parents, just say the same thing but louder. Like when we're in France, the same thing. Speak but louder. Sit down. He sits down. Thank you. Then he said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing up. And there are so many of us as Christians who on the outside are sitting down, but on the inside we're standing up. And we do the right thing, but really our heart is not in it. It's a little bit like Jonah knows the will of God. 
but he doesn't have the heart of God. You know, so many times people come and they'll say stuff to me about this and that and that, and I think, yeah, you're saying some stuff, but where's your heart? Where is your heart? You can be saying that and pulling that apart and attacking that and doing that and doing it. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Because we can know the will of God and we can do the will of God. But as we'll find from Jonah this week and next week, and we can do it all without having the heart of God. So Jonah pitches up to this city called Nineveh and he does his whatever. And he says, you know, 40 more days, boys, and then it'll, you know, you'll all be destroyed unless you turn, whatever. He doesn't really believe that it will happen. He doesn't really believe that they'll turn. He's just like doing it. He's going through the motions. And then amazingly, in verse 5, look at this, it's phenomenal. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. In other words, they all turned to God. Can you imagine that? So Nahum goes in with all these big passion and all these big statements. <laughs> Jonah goes in with a petulant eight words and they all turn to God. That's phenomenal. They all come to God. And you see the heart of Jonah here revealed in this story. And remember that God more than anything is after Jonah's heart. And you know this morning, you and I can know the will of God, but we need the heart of God. That's a whole different challenge. And then thirdly, then we're going to move on. We see the heart of the king in verse 6. Listen to this. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is an extreme caricature of what repentance is really all about. How many have heard of the word repentance? Yeah, it's not a very popular word these days and we don't talk about it much anywhere. It's often on those billboards that people have and they walk through cities and repent. And, you know, we just don't like the word really. But really, repentance in its meaning Uh, The Hebrew word shuv, S-H-U-V, means two things. It means turn and it means return. Repentance isn't just about turning from bad things or turning from ungodly things. It's about returning to good things, godly things. When you repent, you, you turn from wickedness and you return to goodness at the same time. Repentance really is about surrender and liberation all at the same time. It's about stop doing some stuff and start doing some stuff together. It's about turning and returning. And there's a window here with this king into what real repentance is about. Number one, he gets off his throne. You notice that? It says he rises. He gets off his throne. Why? Because repentance begins when we realize that we are not meant to be on the throne. God is. And so he gets off his throne in an acknowledgement that there is only one that should be seated on the throne and it ain't me. And it ain't you. It's God. So he gets off his throne. We use the phrase, he gets off his high horse. He gets off his throne and then he takes off all of his outer garments. All of those kingly robes that are his identity and his security and his validity and his authenticates him. This is who he is. But he realises that before God, they're nothing and so he takes them all off. And then he puts on sackcloth and ashes which symbolise mourning and regret and real genuine repentance. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there is something within all of us that A, doesn't want to get off the throne... B, doesn't want to take off the outer clothes because they're our identity. And C, certainly doesn't want to sit in sackcloth and ashes. Because actually what we would rather do is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Do you remember that? You weren't there, but you remember the story. 
that actually what they would rather do is hide and cover up than open up. And see, that's what sin does. And repentance is when we stop hiding, stop covering up, get rid of the fig leaves and are real before God. And that's what the king does. He gets off his throne, takes off all the kingly garments, puts on the sackcloth and ashes. He turns and he returns at the same time. And then in verse 7 and 8, look at this. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any, any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Everybody, everything in the city repents, even the animals. Now, I don't think that that means that there's dogs walking around saying, you know, when I was a puppy, I was into drugs and drink and all this, but then I met God and now singing Amazing Grace. Do you know what I mean? There's, that's not what's happening. This is hyperbole. This is exaggeration to make a point that everybody in the city turns to God. Now, there's a few questions I've got for you out of this. Number one, do we really ever repent? Do we ever really repent? There's been a few times in my life where I've been in situations and situations where I've done stuff and been in situations where my spiritual future comes down to the point of whether I really repent or not. And really repent means I take full responsibility. I don't blame anybody or anything, even if there are things that I could blame. I take full responsibility I don't hide or protect or cover up, but I let God be God. I get off the throne. And in that, in, that, in that act of that, and in that situation of that, not only do you turn away from sin, but you return to God. And there is nothing more liberating than really, really repenting. Repenting is more than being sorry. Repenting is much, much deeper than that. So do we ever really ever repent? And secondly, do we still believe in revival? Anyone? Do we still believe in an awakening where communities, groups, individuals, kings, peasants, do you know what I mean? Every, where a whole group of people could turn to God. Do we, ever, do we still believe that? We used to believe that. And I, in my mind, I, I fully understand that how God worked in the past is not necessarily how he's going to work now. How God works in Africa and India and South America is not necessarily how he's going to work here now. It doesn't mean he's not God. It just means that he works in a different way. But in acknowledging all of that, have we lost the expectancy that God is a God who can move in revival awakening power? Because there's something in this story about how God uses an angry, disobedient prophet who knows the will of God but doesn't have the heart of God and he uses him to turn a city around to him. That's phenomenal, isn't it? So if he can do that with Jonah, imagine what he could do with a bunch of people whose hearts are in tune with God, who aren't angry, who aren't disobedient, who do have the heart of God as well as knowing the will of God. Imagine what God could do. Wouldn't that be phenomenal? Let me read some things to you about what revival is about. These are words written by different people in different generations. Guys, say this, revival is nothing more or less than a new obedience to God. Revival is an invasion from heaven that brings a conscious awareness of God. A true revival means nothing less than a revolution, casting out the spirit of worldliness, making God's love triumph in the heart 
A revival means days of heaven on earth. How many of you want that? Some days of heaven on earth. Do you know, there isn't any, any formula, in my opinion, but there's a lot about the heart that's involved in this. There's a lot about a heart of an individual and the heart of a community of people that want to deal with their own stuff, that want to really repent, that want to wake up and that have the heart and the passion to cry out for their nation and for their community. And then we're going to come in the last section to back to God again. So we started with the heart of God, the God of the second look. We looked at the heart of Jonah, the petulant teenager. Then we looked at the heart of the king that gets off his throne and really repents. But now we're going to come back to the heart of God again. And we're facing a theological dilemma. Okay? Some of you will have totally gone to sleep, even those two words that I put together. Theological dilemma. Literally, you went to sleep. Some of you will have woken up. Here is the dilemma. The problem is in verse 9. The king says, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? God may yet relent and turn from his anger. When you translate that from the original, people have different versions of that. Some of you may have the word repent. Some people translated that word to repent. Some people translate it like this. God will repent from the evil he is about to do. How do you know that gives us a little bit of a problem, doesn't it? Whoa, hang on a minute. God, God, God can repent like me? Then other scholars will say, no, it doesn't really mean that. It means relent. It means turning from what he was about to do. Oh, okay, that's all right. But then I've got another problem. Does that mean God can change his mind? Can God who knows everything... Does he not know everything? Does he not know whether people will turn or not? Is there some things that are closed to that, that somehow God doesn't know that, so God may change? So Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, after the flood and God destroys the earth with the flood, the Bible says the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. That word grieved is translated in some Bibles, regret. Sorry. So the Lord regretted that he'd made man. How can you, if you know everything and you know how it will turn out, how can you regret? How can you be sorry for something if you knew already what was going to happen? Exodus 32 verse 14. He's going to destroy the Israelites because of their sin and disobedience. Then the, the Bible says in verse 14, then the Lord relented. He changed. He turned. And did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah, evil king. God says, I'm going to sort you out, mate. You're too evil. But he turns. And not only does he heal him, he gives him an extra 15 years of his life. (laughs) So is our God a God who regrets, relents, changes his mind or not? The key to this is how we approach it. See, often when we approach theological dilemmas, I'm going to be doing some stuff in May about heaven and hell. Some of you will know that there's a lot of controversy around the Christian world right now about a book that's been written, which I've read this week. We're going to talk about that. We're going to look at that. But one of the problems when you're facing any theological problem is the position that you approach it with. Do you approach it with a closed position or an open position? Do you approach it from a position of, I understand what things mean. How does that fit with God? So how many of you know God is love? What does love mean? Does that mean God is love as you define love or as we define love? Or is it a whole different thing? How many know God is good? What does good mean? 
Are you with me? If we approach it from a closed position that we know what this means, and God, you need to kind of answer who you are in the light of our revelation, then we're in trouble. Let me give you an example. There's a man, and he's walking north towards Scotland. He thinks he's walking north because he's walking north towards Scotland, but he's on a train going south. Which direction is he going? He's walking north at the train, but the train's going south. And the problem is, while he's walking north on a train going south, the earth is rotating in an easterly direction. So what direction is he going now? And all the time that the earth is rotating, it's in an orbit around the sun. So what direction is it going now? And even while the earth is orbiting around the sun, it's tilting a little bit. So what direction is it now going? And the sun is the supposed centre of the universe, but we're a part of a galaxy that are moving in vast regions of the infinite. So what direction is he going? Answers on a postcard. What direction is he going? Who knows? We don't know, do we? Because it's too complex for us to understand. It's outside of our frame. It's outside of our understanding. So does God change his mind? Can God feel regret? I don't know. It is beyond me. It is beyond me. But there is a key in these words that the king says. Who knows? God may yet Relent. That's a phenomenal phrase. Are you with me? Anyone, anyone still with me, yeah? Who knows? God may yet relent. The king says, who knows? God may yet relent. God may yet turn. God may yet change his mind. God may yet intervene in a situation. Who knows? God may yet do it. It smacks of a phrase in 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you want to go there with me, I'm going to read a bit from that, but... This is a story that some of you will know, I'm sure, and some of you perhaps won't. But David, the David who killed Goliath, um, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. But when David was king and he was at the height of his power, David sinned very badly that he took another woman as his own woman and had sex with her and she had a baby and he tried to get the husband killed, uh, did get the husband killed. So he committed all kinds of evil things. And then two years later... Now he's married to the woman and with a child. Two years later, the prophet, like Jonah, but a different one, Nathan, came to him and told him a story about a man who'd done wicked things. And David says, Ooh, that's so wicked. Who is that wicked man? He should be sorted out. And Nathan said, You are that man. And in an instant, he woke up. The spiritual deception that had held him for two years was broken in an instant. And he saw the light. And he saw what he had really done. And he fell on his knees and he repented. He got off his throne and he repented. He did all of that. The problem was that there were consequences for what he'd done and the child died. Now in 2 Samuel 12, and it's very difficult to understand all of this, I know that, but just stick with me on the point. Let's read verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they thought while the child was still living... We spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. So how can we tell him now that the child is dead? David noticed his servants were whispering, realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. And David got up from the ground after he'd washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and you wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and you eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept and I thought... Who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. So so what's happening is that while 
things going on there and he doesn't know how it's going to turn out, he prays and he fasts and he believes, who knows, God may be gracious to me. But it doesn't work out that way. He doesn't get the answer he wants. So what does he do? He gets up and he worships God anyway. That's really hard to understand, but, but let me try and get to the point. There's something in the heart of David, there's something in the heart of this king that says, you know what, I don't know how God's going to act. I don't know what God's going to do. But who knows? Who knows? God may be gracious. Who knows? God may yet relent. Some people will tell you that that's not enough for them in their faith. So will God heal every person who is sick? Will God save every person who we pray for? Will God give every, every person who is single the partner that they pray for and that they want to spend the rest of their life with? Will God do that? Will God return every wayward child? There are some people that would say that there are certain keys that you can find that ensure that the answer to your prayer will always be yes. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that's true. I believe that's when we come to God from a closed position where we think we've got God worked out and God sometimes wants to say, do you know what, you haven't even begun to get to to work me out. My ways are so much higher than yours. Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? We don't know the mind of the Lord, do we? We don't understand. God's ways are higher than ours. We know what he's revealed to us, but there is so much that we don't know. And yet the king and David are men of faith who say, who knows, the Lord may be gracious. Who knows, the Lord may relent. In other words, they're saying, we're going to pray for sick people. We're going to believe that God will, um, will bring a partner to a single person that's, that's wanting that. We're going to pray for wayward, child's to be, uh, re- wayward children to be returned. We're going to pray for those people who don't know God to know God. We're going to do that because who knows? The Lord may relent. The Lord may be gracious. But if he doesn't, he's God and we're not. But a theology that says that there are certain things that you can do and engage which will mean that the answer will always be yes is not a theology that I see in this book. Especially in the areas of healing. I have to say, I am... Sometimes, sometimes the answer's not always yes. That doesn't mean there's a lack of faith. That doesn't mean that if we'd have prayed in a certain way, with a certain inflection in our voice, and a certain time, things would have happened. I believe that that is a faith that starts from a baseline of our perspective, not from who God is. And somehow we have to get back and get off our throne and say, God, you're God. And I want to declare, we will pray for sick people all the time. We will pray for those who are lost all the time. We will believe God for partners for people. We will believe God for wayward children to return. But do you know what? If the answer is not yes, God is still God. And we will worship him anyway. God, who knows that God may yet relent. You, you, You see, the problem is that when someone dies that we prayed for to be healed, that when someone doesn't come to faith, that we've prayed for to come to faith, that when the partner doesn't materialise, or the wayward child doesn't return, what then? What then? Well, there's only two options, isn't there? Either God's at fault or we're at fault. And I want to tell you, neither, neither are necessarily the case. 
You see, a gospel that has circumstances as its baseline is not a gospel at all. What do I mean by that? See, we've often thought that the gospel is about moving you from one set of circumstances to another. So the gospel is about moving from hopelessness to hope, from insecurity to security. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not about going from one set of circumstances to another. The gospel is about the revelation of who Christ is and what Christ has done at the cross. And I die and Christ now lives. Nothing about my circumstances. The fact is I will move from hope to hopelessness to hope. I will move from, but that's not the gospel point. The point is Christ who is our hope, isn't he? Christ who is our security. The circumstance of our life can be all kinds of things. The gospel is about who we are in Christ. Christ is in us. That's why if you're coming to freedom in Christ tomorrow, come with an open position in your mind. If you've not thought about coming, come with an open position and you'll see God who is God. And when we fall in love with Christ and when we die to ourselves, all those things will be added. But when we have a gospel that's based on come to Jesus and your circumstances will change, we don't have a gospel that's in there. There is something in the heart of God that at times seems to mirror what's going on in us. When we weep, he weeps. When we laugh, he laughs. When we turn, he can turn. He can change. But God is not a formula. God is not a computer. God is not someone we program. God is God. Amen? And who knows? The Lord may yet relent. So I want to say as we finish, God is a God who gives people like you and me a second look. How many of you are grateful to that? He's a God who gives a second look. God is a God who does relent and who does turn from judgment. He's a God who does save cities as well as individuals. He's a God who does have grace for disobedient, angry prophets as well as for evil, ungodly kings. He is a God who may bring awakening and revival to us. Who knows? The Lord may yet. Let's pray. Why don't we stand together this morning? Guys, if you could come back. I know I've been passionate about this this morning. Next week is just a whole thing of the heart of God and the heart of man. It's just, just blowing my mind. But you know, as we, as we come to this, I, I sense this morning that there are many of us here and we have stopped believing and we have stopped praying and we have stopped expecting God to move in certain areas of our life and you may think that what I've said this morning re-emphasizes that I don't believe it does I believe it liberates it actually because that position of faith saying who knows the Lord may be gracious who knows the Lord may yet actually should free us to pray should free us to believe should free us to expect if the answer isn't the yes we want it to do then God's God He's got that sorted. We've got to let that go. But it may be this morning that there are some of you and you stopped praying for someone who is sick. And you stopped expecting someone to come to faith. And you've been praying for them for ages. There's things in your life that you've stopped believing will ever change. There's things in others' lives that you've stopped believing will ever change. Things in your family, things in your workplace, things even in our community or in our nation. And you've come to a point where you've stopped. You've gone to sleep in that area and I believe that God is calling you to wake up today and what we're going to do is we're going to sing this song again that we sung and in a few moments we're going to move it outward and we're going to, we're going to pray for our world this morning as we finish today but before we do that I want to give you an opportunity there were many people at the 9 o'clock that responded in this way 
And you know that you have stopped believing. You've stopped expecting. You've just gone to sleep in an area of your life. And I want you to say to God, God, I want to wake up to that. I want to pray again. I want to believe again. Who knows? God may yet. God may yet. Then I want you to come and stand at the front. Because I want you to know that you've made a decision. And that you've acted. You see, the interesting thing is that God says, when he saw what they did, when he saw what they did, he relented. Not what they said, what they did. When he saw what they did, he relented. And so this morning, as we sing this song, I want to invite you. Any of you that want to, and you say, yeah, I've, I've stopped praying, I've stopped believing, I've stopped expecting some area of my life, either for me or for others. Come and stand as a way of responding to God. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to move on. Father, we thank you for your amazing words. Lord, not my words aren't that great, but your word is phenomenal. And Lord, that you could use an angry, petulant, shallow prophet like Jonah to bring about a whole city turning to you. Wow. Phenomenal, God. You're amazing. And you love Jonah so much that you've not finished just because the city's turned. But as we'll see next week, you still are longing for his heart to come to you. God, I pray. Many of us here, you know, we know what your will is. We know the right things to do. But God, if our heart is a million miles away, then God, let our heart return to you today, I pray. If we stopped expecting, if we stopped believing, if we've grown asleep, we've grown lethargic, God, I pray that even by making a commitment, a decision this morning, that Lord, that we'll open something up in the spiritual realm. Wake us up, I pray. In Jesus' name.